This week I was listening to a series of podcasts while I was driving, and it's some, something called uh, 50 Inventions That Changed the World, and you know, a lot of little cool things, invention of plastic, and invention of a lot of little, little neat things that were invented over time. You know what's interesting about some of the inventions were, sometimes laziness is the mother of invention, right? You're like, boy... This feels like a lot of work. I need to figure out some way to make this easier, right? And not, of course, not all the inventions that I learned about this week were that bay, but often many of them were. And as we think about sort of this idea of kind of being in the state of not doing much or wanting to not do much, the way we left it last week was the people in the New Testament, the apostles, the people that were following the Lord were waiting, right? They were waiting to see what was going to happen as far as this helper coming to them. And so today we're going to learn about how, what they're doing while they are waiting. So they're waiting, and we're going to see what happens. So let's jump here to verse 12. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. So this is kind of piggybacking, continuing from Luke here. They return. The, the uh, ascension of Christ had happened. He had returned, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. So they come back to Jerusalem, and they travel a Sabbath day's journey. Now, a Sabbath day's journey is not meant to be anything having to do with they traveled on the Sabbath or something like that. It's really just a distance. And you say, well, how far is a Sabbath day's journey? And I thought of this. There was a commercial that used to run back in the old Nebraska days when I lived there. And there was a commercial for this car dealership called Woodhouse Ford. I don't know if it's still true, but at least at one point, Woodhouse Ford was the largest car dealership in the Midwest, and it was in Blair, Nebraska. And Blair is north of Omaha, and they would run commercials for Woodhouse Ford, and this is what they'd say. They'd say, you know, come to Woodhouse Ford, and there was this guy in this kind of older southern accent, come to, come to a country mile north of Omaha in Blair, Nebraska. And you'd say, what is a country mile? Well, I can tell you, a country mile from Omaha to Blair is like 30 miles. <laughs> it is all, it, you know, I don't know what a country mile is supposed to be, but it's a lot of miles. And a Sabbath day journey is kind of this similar idea. It's very hard to be like, this is how far it is. Because if I'd say a country mile, you might think, oh, a couple miles or maybe, like, I, you, you know, I don't know what you would think. But for them, what it usually meant was there's this distance you could travel on the Sabbath that was equal to the diameter diameter of your village. So whatever, however the distance the diameter of your village was, you could travel that distance on the Sabbath. So of course, you know, how big's your village? And that became kind of a very loose thing. So our best guess is probably about three-fourths of a mile. Obviously, we're not sure about that in the same way that 100 years from now, if someone watches that commercial and tries to guess what a country mile north of Omaha means, they might have a hard time determining what in the world that guy was talking about. So they return maybe about three-fourths of a mile so from uh, Olivet. They come back to Jerusalem, verse 13, and when they had entered, they went up to the upper room. So the upper room was often a room that was built atop of a flat house, and these rooms were often rented out. And sometimes even these rooms were offered for free to pilgrims. So if you are traveling to Jerusalem for some kind of special occasion, sometimes people would even let their upper rooms be rented 
for free. So they come to the upper room where they were staying, and Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. I'm not sure why they decided to put all the ands where they did, but I know my editor would have really torn that up and, put, and uh, changed that quite a bit. We go on to verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So women likely includes the witnesses of the crucifixion and resurrection, we know that the women also may include the wives of people that are here. See, Luke is really one of the main authors that mentions the presence of women. Often many other authors don't talk about whether women were there or not, but it seems like Luke tends to be more than any other author to kind of go out of his way to mention that the women were there. So they've come together, they've devoted themselves to prayer, both men and women, wives or or, or maybe others, maybe not even wise, maybe just followers of Jesus, right? There's a, obviously you can be a single woman and be a follower of Jesus. So there may have been some single women there. We do not know. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, this is the last time she is mentioned in the New Testament. So, of course, Mary is a very important figure. She's important. We talk about her at Christmas oftentimes. But as far as ongoing practice of the church, uh, I'm not sure I would say she's necessarily a pivotal figure. So, of course, within Catholicism, Mary is like this super important thing, ongoing and so on and so forth. I don't want to say Mary's not important. Mary is important. But this is it. You know, Acts 1 is the last time she's uh, ever mentioned. Uh, Jesus' brother James, he'll be noted later, later as a leader uh, in the book of Acts. And what we notice here is that Prayer is mentioned, and this is the first of many times that prayer is going to be mentioned in Acts. It is mentioned 31 times, and is an ongoing topic in which Acts addresses. Now, notice that while they're waiting for Jesus to send the helper, they're not being idle, they're praying. And we're going to talk more about that later. Verse uh, 15, in those days Peter stood up. Among the brothers, the company of the persons was all about 20 and said, so 120. So there's 120 people there, both men and women, and he comes up, he stands before them, and he says something, I have an announcement to say, and he starts out, brothers. Now, this is, this is interesting. He says the word brothers. Are there women there? Yes. So is he only talking to the men? Or is he talking to the men and the women? I would say he is definitely talking to the men and women. I think, I mean, I, I, I doubt the women are just sitting there. Oh, you know, ladies, you don't have to hear this one. You know, I assume that they were hearing this one as well. So he says, brothers, he's talking to both women, women, men and women. That's why some translations might translate this brothers and sisters. Because when I read brothers in English, what do I think they're talking about? Just men. But I think it's pretty clear within the context, he's not addressing just men. He's addressing the men and the women. Or you might, I, there was one translation that went something like this, believers. It actually used the word believers to note that it was both men and women that he was talking to. As a matter of fact, in Acts 17.34, it's another time we're sure that this word men, the word is anti 
Andras in the Greek, it's, there's different forms of it or whatever, but we know there's another time for sure that same Greek term is used to refer to both men and women. And so here, I definitely think we're talking to both men and women. So he says, brothers, or brothers and sisters, or believers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I was a little surprised to read that there was this prophecy about Judas in the Old Testament. Like, I mean, I've read the Old Testament probably only through once or twice, so I'm sure I've forgotten most of it. But boy, I don't recall Judas being mentioned in the Old Testament. So what is this prophecy about Judas that he's going to give? We'll hear more about it later. Now, as he begins to speak, as he begins to talk about Judas, what we're going to find is he's going to talk about needing a replacement for him. And I'm going to say a few things about that right now. So Judas had died. Judas had abandoned the Lord. And so Peter is about to make this speech on having a replacement made for him. And I think there's a few things we should notice here. Why is Judas seen as no longer an apostle? It's not because he died, it doesn't seem. It's because he became a guide to those who he arrested. It's because of what he did was wrong. Also, while we need a replacement for Judas in this particular situation, also notice that when we get to further on in Acts, when James, the son of Zebedee, dies, there is no replacement needed. So, why do we need a replacement in this situation and we don't replace them as time goes on? Let me give you a few thoughts on this. First, in Revelation, there talks about some, uh, a time when there's uh, the four apostles. It mentions the four apostles being on a, a certain uh, 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 written. And so there seems like there's only 12. So therefore, Judas probably isn't going to be one of those 12, right? So we need someone to fill the place. So that's why it's fulfilled. We see as we go on the requirements for being apostle is that you were around during the life of Jesus. So it seems like after a while, we're not going to be able to fulfill them if we want to. And so I think the reason that even though during there might have still been someone alive who lived at the time of Jesus that could have replaced this James, the son of Zebedee, that he was not replaced because they only needed to replace the 12th one because of the symbolic idea of keeping 12. This idea of 12 is very interesting. I say to you, how many tribes of Israel are, are there? 12. What are they? You can list the sons of Jacob. And one of the sons of Jacob is going to be Joseph. Does Joseph appear in the lists of the 12 tribes of Israel? Almost never, but sometimes. Sometimes. Sometimes it's his grandsons. There's like very different variations of who's listed. So I would say there's like 14 tribes of Israel. But it's always listed as a 12. This 12 is an important idea. And so I think that having a 12th one, because 
Judas became disqualified was important. So it says in Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you will have followed me, you have followed me, will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is why we part of why we need twelve. Verse 17. For he was numbered among us and was lauded his share in this ministry. So Judas was a part of them. He had his own uh, part in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. Now this gets confusing as well. How did Judas die? He hung himself. So, Debbie is helping me here. In one passage, he seems to hang himself. In this passage, his insides seem to burst out. Also, it says, this man acquired the field. What does Matthew say about who required the field? What happened to the money? Judas comes. They give him the money. He eventually decides he doesn't want it. He decides to give it back. And I like vividly remember this, watching this in a cartoon. They won't take it, and he throws it on the temple floor. And the cartoon, it falls within the cracks. Just to... So, then what? The people of the temple buy the actual piece of land. So Judas didn't buy the land, but it says here, now this man acquired a field. I thought, I thought it was like the temple priest that acquired the field. Why does it say that Judas acquired the field? Well, let me give you a few thoughts on this. First, if you say something like this, the judge executed the criminal. Does the judge actually execute the criminal? No, the judge does not. Right? He's not the executioner. You know, we have the judge, the jury, the executioner. Those things are separate. So is Judas responsible for the purchase of this piece of land? Well, yes. Once they got the money back and they didn't feel like they could, could put it back in the temple coffers, they decided they needed to do something else with it. So yes, Judas is not the one that went and bought the land himself, but he is the one responsible for the land being bought. And then when he dies, he was hung and then he burst open. And uh, I did a lot of reading on hanging this uh, particular week. It's pretty disgusting. And um, there are different ways that you die when you hang, right? So the most common way, you get dropped and then you the blood vessels get cut off and you pass out. And hopefully that's not too bad. I don't know. But then if you get dropped from higher up, sometimes you can get decapitated. And that's also quite bad. But then also, you know what happens when we hang somewhere too long, we swell, right? And so it seems like what happened here is likely Judas was hung. He probably swelled up after he had passed away and eventually, um, what happened? Yeah, bust open, all right? I'm trying to say this as nicely as possible. It's, it's pretty disgusting. And so this is probably what happened to him. It seems like Luke here is really trying to emphasize how bad he was Right? Because he got the feel with the rule for his weakness. 
and he sort of mentions sort of the grossest parts of his death. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Now, I'm actually, I, I always thought that the field that they bought was the field that Judas died in. I'm not sure we know that, that that's 100% true. I, I think it makes sense that that's true, but I don't think we absolutely know he actually hung himself in that same field. It doesn't really say that explicitly here. It doesn't say it explicitly in Matthew. It doesn't seem to care about the location of his death. It would make sense. You could also say it was called the field of blood because it was bought with blood money, right? Not just because someone died there and it was a bloody situation. So I'm not sure it was really he died there or not. Verse 24 is written in the book of Psalms. So now he goes on. He says the, there was this, you know, the Bible told us there was this thing about Judas. And now he's going to finally quote it. And he says, may this camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. I oftentimes just skip the Old Testament quotes. Not skip, I just don't talk about them very much. And today, we are going to talk about it a little bit more. The first two lines of this, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it, comes from Psalm 69.25, and it's in the context of the psalmist crying out to be delivered from his enemies. So when you read this as an Old Testament person, prior to Judas coming about, would you have ever read this and said to yourself, well, obviously there's going to be this Messiah, and he's going to have this guy, and then they're going to become friends, and he's going to be one of his buddies, and then he's going to you know, betray him, and there you go. That's obviously what is being talked about here. I mean, there's like no way you would ever get that out of it. As a matter of fact, when he quotes it, he says, may his can't become desolate. He actually turns the his in singular. It was originally plural, and he makes it singular. Well, why does he do this? Because then he smashes it together with another quote from the Old Testament, which is actually comes from Psalm 109, verse 8, and it says, and let another take his office. So he wanted the his of his camp to fit with the his of his office. And so he changed the, whether it was singular or plural, from the Old Testament. This is actually not that uncommon. Okay? It seems a little weird to us. So when we think the prophecy being fulfilled, we're thinking that there's going to be like Judas is going to be mentioned. What actually he is doing here is not really fulfilling, like saying we're fulfilling a direct prophecy. Prophecy. He's saying this like principle of we're calling for God to bring judgment on evil. What happens to Judas? He's evil. We want judgment upon him. And what do they cry out in the Old Testament when they want someone evil to be taken care of? When they're enemies, he wants them to judge. We need another to take their place. So he says, in the same way as in the Old Testament, when the psalmist cry out, cries out for someone to take the office of the evil person who holds it now, in the same way we need to replace this person. So 
I would argue that Psalm 69.25 and Psalm 109.8, they could apply to other situations as well. This is not like a, this was about Judas. And if you read these and you didn't come up with Judas, you got it wrong. I don't think that's the case. I think this principle of you have these enemies, you want God to take care of them, and then you want to replace them with someone better is just a principle in which Peter is referring to. Does that make sense? A lot of times I skip a lot of the details of the quotes of the Old Testament because they often are kind of, how do I call this? They, they apply it very in a way that's very unique to us, and it takes quite a bit of explanation. Verse 21 and 22. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, so referring to Judas, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So he says, in the Old Testament, it talks about an enemy that you need to replace, and we want to be able to replace this person. And the person we want to have had to be from the beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. And so this is like an A to Z thing, and includes everything in between. They had to be there at the beginning, they had to be there at the end, and therefore would have had to taken part on everything in between. This is called a zugma. Okay. This is, you mention A, you mention Z, and you intend to have everything be included in between. In the beginning, is it John's baptism? It's Jesus' baptism? Uh, I don't care too much. I'd probably say it's maybe John's baptism that started the preparation for Jesus, but maybe if Jesus' life is what's important, you'd say it was Jesus' baptism. But we had to have someone that was there from the beginning. And so once again, there are no future generations that can fulfill these qualifications. So every once in a while, and I don't know the details, I'll see a denomination or a particular church or whatever talk about apostle so-and-so. And I'm like, really? You're an apostle, huh? You fulfilling these A to Z qualifications here? You know, I, I mean, I don't think so. And I, I would argue we do not have apostles today. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was called Justice, and Matthias. Barsabbas means son of Sabbath. We know very little about him, basically nothing. Um, there is, uh, he's associated with, we don't really know if this is true, but he's associated with the tradition in the later church that had him survive swallowing snake poison. So, Apparently, he swallowed snake poison at some point, but once again, we're not 100% sure about that. We actually don't know very much about Matthias either. We know his name means gift from God. We know that he was uh, said to have been martyred in Ethiopia, but he's not really talked about again. And this brings up a debate. So we replace the 12th apostle with Matthias. But he never really gets talked about it again. He doesn't seem very important. But there's this other guy that refers to himself as an apostle that is really important. That gets talked about all the time. That, like, wrote a lot of the Bible. 
and defends how he is truly an apostle. This, of course, is Paul. So who is really the 12th apostle? Is it really Matthias? I mean, who's the one in this particular passage that decided they needed to replace the 12th apostle? Did God do it? Or was it the people? It was the people. Was this like a legitimate system? Paul got called out by God, you know, like in a special, unique, miraculous way, whereas Matthias was just chosen here. So you can see the debate. Who's the one? Who's the real 12th one? And if you're looking for me to answer it, good luck. But I'll tell you what I think. I agree. There are some interesting things regarding this particular choosing of Matthews. We'll see they used lots. It was the last time lots were ever used. Maybe it was because lots were no longer used because the Holy Spirit came. But, you know, why did they use lots? Are we supposed to use lots? Like, when there's, you know, I mean. Next time we're deciding what color we're going to put carpet in, we'll just line up like 17 different colors. We'll make a lot for each one, and then we'll just pink it is. You know, I mean, that's not what I would have picked, but, you know, Lord, you know, here it is. We don't do lots anymore, so maybe that wasn't legit. But Paul himself references the 12. And so I think, to me, that says... If he's referencing the 12 and he's not one of them, that even though there is some peculiarities here with this, uh, the selecting Matthias, I think he still is legitimate 12th apostle. And that when we talk about Matthew and the 12, Matthias' name will be there. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these you two have chosen. So they asked God to help show them to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. So when they ask God, they say Judas turned aside and go to his own place. To his own place ended up becoming a euphemism in the early church to mean going to hell. So it seems, it says, when he turned aside, he decided to go to his own place. Is Judas going to be in heaven someday? It would seem the answer is no. Which, you know, when you betray the Son of God and get him killed, it would make sense that maybe you weren't a Christian, right? And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So like I said, there's never, this is never mentioned again, this casting of lots. The only other time it's mentioned in the New Testament was they cast lots for Jesus' clothes. They would use stone or wood or animal bones or arrows they put them in a bag, they'd shake up the bag, and whichever came first would win. So this is how they used it. You know, one suggestion I heard, the good thing about casting lots is it really prevents rivalry. And I'll give you an example. It's from basketball, believe it or not. When you're playing basketball and you, you're calling fouls, you, know, you don't have a ref, right? So you go in, someone says, oh, you fouled me. No, you didn't. Or maybe... You say, you were out of bounds. No, I wasn't. Yes, you were. No, I wasn't. Yes, you were. No, I wasn't. Yes, you were. Pastor Joel has been known to actually leave in the middle of a game when 
all the guys could do was argue the entire time, and we never could actually play because we're arguing, arguing, arguing. So this is the ultimate way to solve it in basketball. You shoot for it. So I don't know why this, you know, it's like sometimes the guy makes it up, and he's like, oh, I really, it was out. No, it wasn't. Okay, we'll shoot for it. Oh, okay, everyone's okay with shooting for it. So then someone shoots a three, and if you make it, you get it, and if you miss it, the other team gets it. All right, and this is where words like the ball don't lie, which the ball lies all the time, just to let you know. <laughs> Phrases like the ball don't lie come from. But you know what? This solves the problem for everybody. This sort of random chance of this person making the three-pointer solves the problem. And so sometimes when you get in a situation where you don't know what to do, you're choosing from options, I'm not sure it's always not a bad idea for all of you to get together and say, we're just going to flip a coin here. We're just going to flip a coin. Before we flip it, we're both going to agree that whatever the coin says, we'll do, and we'll go with it, and that'll be okay. All right? I'm not sure this is a good idea all the time, but it seems like there's some practical times when the old flipping a coin strategy may not be the worst idea. All right? As long as you agree to do it. So Matthias is chosen. He's numbered among the 11 and becomes, I would say, the 12th apostle. Then we come to chapter 2, which is going to be filled with some interesting things. But I'd like us to think about back to chapter 1. Now, last week I said, you know, when they were looking up at Jesus after his ascension and they were told they needed to go do something, I kind of harped on, no, we need to do something, right? We need to do something. We need to do something. And I'd like us to notice this. When they went back, and they were waiting on the Spirit. They did something. Something probably more big than just picking Matthias as the 12th apostle. They went back and did something. They went back and they prayed together. I'd like us to realize and think about how when we pray, it is doing something. Right? Now, saying you're going to pray and then not praying isn't doing anything. That's nothing. But prayer is something. You know, sometimes we get in a situation, maybe you have a daughter or a sister or a, a son or a, or a dad or a, or a whoever in your family or friend, and, and, and you're just like, their life's going off the rails, right? You're like, man, I, I want to do something to help them. You know, if they're, they're, they're child, and let's say they're grown up, they're, they're grown up. I'm sorry, man, they're grown up. They're grown up. Yeah, I want to do something. And I think it's important not to forget that prayer is doing something. Prayer is not nothing. And there are times when we have horrible situations with our health, or we see someone go through a difficult time, or people making poor choices, and we just want to do something. And the only thing we can do is prayer. I just want to encourage you, Prayer is something. You are doing something. So we all need to make sure we take time to pray. When you can't do anything else and you need to do something, it's time to pray. Speaking of which, let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, we just thank you for this morning. We just lift up to you this message. And Lord, maybe... Maybe one of us here today just feels helpless. Feels like there's nothing that can be done and there's a situation you can't control or 
can't even influence. You just feel like it's just all going away and it's all going bad and nothing you can do. Lord, I just thank you that we are able to pray, that we are able to have access to you and make our requests made known to you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.